This is where the DJ talks. Don't say anything. Okay. Hi, listeners. I'm Sean Rogers, husband to one of your wonderful regular hosts, Amanda. As a longtime listener and supporter of the Discord and Rhyme podcast, I've become concerned recently that the show is simply getting too scattered and unfocused. And as a Canadian, this show is clearly not abiding by federal Canadian content regulations and not featuring enough Canadian artists. Sean has a point. We're really just skimming the surface of our favorite albums and not doing the type of deep multi-episode album dives that Sean suggests. And frankly, while all of our listeners' opinions are valuable, most of them are not currently sleeping with a podcast host, as far as I know. Therefore, I like to use my privileged position to wrench Discord and Rhyme into a new format and bring it into compliance with CanCon regulations. So, for the next 10 shows, we're going to be doing a comprehensive and frankly exhaustive survey of Canada's greatest living artist, Kim Mitchell of Max Webster. So join us as we go for a soda where nobody hurts and nobody cries, where nobody drowns and nobody dies. On second thought, this is a big mistake. Why don't we do a Canadian album this time just to satisfy this hooser? And hoser. Hoser. And then amend the show rules so spouses and partners can't come on? Gotcha. How about say Fully Completely by the Tragically Hip? I can live with that, eh? Let's do it, and then I'll show myself oot. This is Discord and Rhyme, Canadian style. <laughs> Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums song by song. We're on both Twitter and Instagram at DiscordPod, and you can find show notes and our full episode archive at DiscordPod.com. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and generally where podcasts are found. I'm your moderator this week, Chris Willie Williams, along with... Rich Bennell. Amanda Rogers. And special guest, Sean Rogers. So we're doing an album by a very, very Canadian band this week. And so in order to discuss them properly, I thought we needed a real live born and bred Canadian here with us. So I brought along my husband who qualifies. Welcome, Sean. Welcome, Sean. And this week, I want to start by thanking our newest Patreon donors, Casey, Nick, and Cheryl. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Rich's Mom. Though I doubt she's going to listen to this episode, but I'll let her know that she was thanked. If you like what you hear and feel like throwing some change in the tip jar, you can visit patreon.com slash discord pod. Our ostensible host this week is Amanda. However, since she's this episode's tragically hip expert host, more or less in name only, I'll probably mess up and just direct a question to Sean more than once. 
So what are you taking us through today, Sean? <clears throat> it's going to be fully completely by the Tragically Hip. Thanks, Amanda. I'm really excited to be part of the show this week to talk about an album fully completely. That's It's a real favorite of mine. And what I think is easily one of the best Canadian rock albums of the past 40 years. I'm always really eager to talk about the Tragically Hip in any context. Uh, not just because they're a great rock band, but because they're a really quintessential Canadian rock band. And I was trying to find a way to explain this. Uh, and and I think I really came up with, with this. Um, you know, there's a long and proud tradition in the United States of artists that are not just great artists, but they kind of embody a type of Americana, like uh, kind of like a, a American spirit. And whether or not you like their music, uh, you know, I'm thinking of, of figures like Stephen Foster, uh, George Gershwin, Muddy Waters, Woody Guthrie, uh, Johnny Cash, Carter Family, Bob Dylan. Wesley Willis. Yeah, exactly. All of these artists, regardless of the quality of their music or the type of their music, you know, their music is enjoyed worldwide, but there's something about them that's very specifically American. They're from a, a, a really deep American tradition. Their music is about America. It's about American figures and events and tropes. If you want to understand something about American society or the American character, you can listen and, and gain something from their music of, of these things. You can listen to their music on a level that's a lot deeper than I'm proud to be an American. Where at least I know I'm free. Yes. And apparently that guy <laughs> recorded a Canadian version of that song. He I'm, really did. I, I'm not even going to bring it up. We heard it at a Canadian military event. He, he sang, I'm proud to be a Canadian, where at least I know I'm free. <laughs> yes. That's also another proud Canadian, Canadian tradition is taking American songs and altering them. <laughs> to, it's to true. Your Canadian. They did that to this land is our land. So there are many classic American singers like that. Uh, and there are far fewer figures like that in Canada, at least on the scale of the names that I just mentioned. Um, Gordon Lightfoot is definitely one. Uh, there's a very rich tradition of singer-songwriters from Quebec, uh, which is the, the tradition that Celine Dion came out of. Uh, more recently, some of the newer immigrant communities have produced figures like Drake, uh, who comes from the Caribbean Canadian community in Toronto. Uh, there's many great uh, Indigenous Canadian mm -hmm. artists. And the Maritimes have a wonderful musical tradition. Yeah, that's very, very drawn from Celtic and Irish Scottish folk music. Mm -hmm. And of course, to quote South Park, the Canadian government has apologized for Brian Adams on multiple occasions. But Really, from the 1990s onward to just a couple of years ago, um, the Tragically Hip, or the Hip, really captured the Canadian experience in their music in a way that few bands before or after have really done. Um, there are a couple of reasons for that that, that we're going to explore in this show. First, while they did cross over in America to an extent, they really remained a Canadian phenomenon. Uh, they stayed in Canada, they recorded their music in Canada, uh, they would tour to places in Canada that many other rock bands wouldn't visit. And they did a lot to promote and showcase uh, lesser-known Canadian bands. And secondly, their songs were often about uniquely Canadian experiences, Canadian personalities, uh, historical events, Canadian attitudes. I won't say too much about this because there's going to be some great examples in the songs that we're going to talk about. But as a Canadian, it's really refreshing to hear good quality songs that name check and reference our own history and character in places. 
Uh, Gord Downey, who is the lead singer and songwriter for the band, even eventually used his fame as a rock star to become a passionate activist for uh, First Nations Canadians and Indigenous Canadians in his last few years. And so we're also going to talk about that later too. And last but not least, The Hip were just a great rock and roll band. They had solid singing and songwriting, uh, solid uh, playing. Uh, they were great uh, in the studio. They were a fantastic live band mm-hmm. that could really let loose and, and jam. And I would really put their run of uh, five albums in the early and mid-1990s, Up to Here, Road Apples, Fully Completely, which we'll look at today, Day for Night, and Phantom Power, as one of the more impressive strings of rock albums of the past 30 years, uh, with the last three of those albums being absolute classics. I was in uh, middle and high school during these years, and you couldn't go five minutes without hearing a hip song on the radio during that period. So their later albums, uh, beginning with Music at Work in 2000, never really hit the same level of quality. Uh, they were always entertaining and memorable. I like the Music at Work album, but I, I, have, I need to point out that it's Music at Work, as in the at symbol in an email yes. address, because this was 2000, and yep. it was like the early internet era. Uh, and in case, like, current listeners or younger listeners like look at that and think man they must have thought that was really cool we didn't no one thought that was cool it was always (laughs) lame it was always the stupidest thing so let's do it i'm so excited to talk about fully completely the tragic hips 1992 album that featured six incredible hit singles and some of their best known music man was this a janet jackson album (laughs) (laughs) they wished it was a janet jackson album Six singles. So if that didn't convince you all of Sean's bona fides, I also want to mention that he actually was part of the same music reviewing community where I met all of you guys on, which Sean and I didn't figure out until after we had started dating. Yes, it was one of those bizarre coincidences. But when I met Amanda, I realized after some thinking that she was the same Amanda Kay that was on the web reviewing community bulletin boards and left comments. And we could go back and see where we had left comments on certain album reviews, but just, you know, in completely different spots. Yeah, we actually replied to each other on the bulletin board a couple of times. (laughs) And now we're... And look at us now. Regarding the Tragically Hip? Uh, Not that I can remember. I don't recall. Well, before we get into that, let's get into some some of our personal histories with the band. Sean, what, what drew you to the Tragically Hip? Growing up in the 1990s in Canada and not being hard of hearing, you listened to the Dragon <laughs> Hip. Uh, no, they they really imprinted on you pretty quickly. Um, they were a very popular Canadian band. Uh, you heard them on the radio a lot. There's just something about their lyrics and the um, kind of really propulsive, hard rocking, but very melodic songs that they put together that really drew you in. And they have been compared in some ways to R.E.M. Uh, mm-hmm. because they were popular around the same time and they had these these inscrutable lyrics and very catchy songs that mm-hmm. that uh, they were just different from a lot of the other you know all Nirvana knockoffs that were on the radio at the time. Sure. Um, Gord Downey just had a knack of pulling you into a song and making you think hard about what he was singing, even when you couldn't understand a single thing about it. And it was only later on going back and actually reading the song's lyrics and learning about the context they were written in that you, you realize that he was actually a genius at capturing something unique about about Canadian, mm-hmm. about Canada and about Canadians. Uh, I went to a Tragedy Hip concert for the first time when I was in university 
And it was a little different than I expected. Um, for some reason, the hip had quite a large, uh, what's the best way to put it? Um, Frat boy contingent? A little bit of that, uh, but definitely like a, a hockey jersey and beer swilling frat boy type crowd mm -hmm. that would, you know, you know, chant along and get into fights. And hip, 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 yeah, hip. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and so it was a real kind of disconnect between, you know, the fact that this was obviously a very artistic and, and sensitive band that sung about really challenging topics. And here you have a bunch of people, fireworks, fireworks, Bob K. Jun, Bob K. Jun. It was just, it was just a, a real disconnect and something it's that... It's a good life if you don't weaken. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah, exactly. Locked in the trunk of a car. And uh, and certainly towards the last few years of the band's existence, they uh, really sort of challenged this uh, uh, tendency in their fan base head on in what I think was a very admirable move. And really, I, I, I've always been a hip fan. I've always enjoyed putting on their albums just to just to rock along in the car or, or uh, at work. And as they kind of evolved into national icons, um, you know, it was really just it was really just impressive to watch a band that I'd grown up with uh, continue to put out great music, care about the fans, care about the uh, the uh, causes that they were attached to in Canada, and really just remain true to to their roots. Mm -hmm. Well, what about you, Amanda? Well, I I had heard of the Tragically Hit before I moved here to Ontario in 2006, probably from Rich actually. Uh, but I wasn't really familiar with their music, and it took a while for them to click with me. Uh, when I first got here, World Container had just come out, and the, the big single from that, In View, was all over the radio. song a lot i still do but it's it's kind of an anomaly for the hip it's much poppier than their songs tended to be and so for a long time i thought the rest of their songs all sounded pretty much the same until one day sean here was playing phantom power and one particular line in fireworks really caught my attention you said you didn't give a fuck about hockey and i never saw someone say that That caught my attention, too. I definitely never heard someone sing that before. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I morphed into a hip fan after that. And while I'm not as into them as Sean and Rich are, I still really love their music. And it was so sad when Gord Downey died. Oh, yeah. uh, I got to see them live twice on the tour for We Are The Same, which Will came to with us. Yeah. And then again on the Man Machine Poem Tour that ended up being their last one. 
And they were very firm about not calling it a farewell tour, even though everybody knew that's what it was. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But honestly, that might be the most fun I've ever had at a concert. It was like a giant dance party the whole time. Everybody was so thrilled to be there. And it was so it was really, really great that we got to be a part of it. That sounds like a lot of fun. It was. Rich, was your experience with the band equally fun? Yeah, yeah, it's really, really fun. I love the Tragically Hip. Well, so I grew up in California, and you had to have really good hearing to be able to hear the Tragically Hip's music from there. So I had to figure it out via the internet. Uh, so I was talking with my Canadian friend, Nadia, on IRC in high school, and uh, the, just the subject of the Tragically Hip came up, and it was just a name I hadn't heard. Um, and I still remember her smart-ass reply, stupid Tragically Hipless Americans. <laughs> and so as is becoming a theme on the show, I took that as a challenge and I picked up their most recent album at the time, which was uh, the excellent Phantom Power, which uh, features the song Fireworks that we just heard. Um, and so I'd still never even left California at the time, just never left the border, even on vacation. So Gord Downey's songs about like hockey and historical figures I hadn't even heard of just made the band seem strange and exotic to me, even though they were really not that far from the country I grew up in. Uh, and so they've just always been kind of a special band for me. And after putting it off for years, I've also, I also managed to see them live at the Fillmore in San Francisco in December 2012, which was the Now for Plan A tour. Yeah, and um, I had several ceremonial, disgusting shots of Yukon Jack in my stomach. Uh, there were hockey jerseys and maple leaves everywhere, and it was one of the best shows I have ever seen. It was amazing. <laughs> they were so good live. Yes, <laughs> yes, they were. They really were. My introduction to the Tragically Hip was probably from 89X, which is a radio station that broadcast from Windsor, Ontario, across the Detroit River into the Detroit suburbs where I lived. Now, at that time, there was a thing called the MAPL system, M-A-P-L, which is a valuable acronym that is not defined on Wikipedia. <laughs> but it required that a certain amount of music that was played on Canadian stations originate from Canadian bands. That is still true. Is it? Yes. Yeah. Those are the CanCon laws. I, I read that it was... Those rules were sort of relaxed for radio stations that broadcast across the border, but... Nevertheless, in addition to the Tragically Hip, I got to learn about a lot of great bands like The Odds and Eric's Trip and Sloan, and also bands like The Bare Naked Ladies. <laughs> At any rate, 89... Hey. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, 89X would occasionally play singles like Courage and Ahead by a Century, so I was slightly aware of the Tragically Hip's existence, but what really grabbed my attention was their presence on two film soundtracks. They wrote an easygoing number called Butts Wigglin' for the phenomenal <laughs> alt-rock soundtrack to Kids in the Hall Brain Candy. In my opinion, the drug is ready. In my opinion, the drug is ready. And Courage is a minor plot point in Adam Agoyan's shattering movie, The Sweet Hereafter. And once you see a film that contains Ian Holm lamenting enough rage and helplessness and your love turns to steaming piss, you don't forget the associated diegetic music. <laughs> In 2009, Amanda and Sean invited me to see The Hip at Toronto's famed Massey Hall. And so here's my journal entry from that evening. <clears throat> I've commented to friends that it felt the way I'd imagined seeing Bruce Springsteen in New Jersey would feel. Everyone seemed spellbound by an artist who had the ability to bring them together. 
not in Beatlemania style one way hero worship, but in mutual respect for their common identity and humanity. It was very cool. Anytime the band left the stage or even lingered momentarily between songs, the audience would frantically begin chanting, hip, hip, hip. During the lengthy wait for an encore, I thought it would have been funny if the crowd's reaction changed en masse to a plaintive, hip, hip. <laughs> I think you tried to start that, but shockingly it didn't work. Yeah, it didn't catch on. Uh, well, your ironic chants never work. I'm sorry. <laughs> but we sure enjoy them. I'm glad. <laughs> so let's get into some some history of the Tragically Hip. Sean, explain to us Yankers why the Tragically Hip is much, much more than just the Canadian R.E.M. I have my hands in the river, my feet back up on the banks, looked up to the lot of power and said, hey, man, thanks. Some so good I gotta scream She said, Gordy baby I know exactly what you mean She said She said I swear to God She said The Tragedy Hip were formed in 1984 by a group of friends and local musicians in the town of Kingston, Ontario. Gord Downey, the lead singer, Rob Baker, the lead guitarist, Paul Langlois, rhythm guitar, Gord Sinclair on bass, and Johnny Fay on drums. And yes, the number of men named Gord in this band is roughly proportionate to the number of men named Gord in the entire country at that time. <laughs> I have an Uncle Gord. It's just a very common name for Canadian men of a certain generation. Yeah, we know like eight of the Gords yeah. of that generation. Uh, very early on, they had a saxophone player by the name of Davis Manning, uh, but he left the group in 1986. And after that, the group's lineup never changed. They took the name The Tragically Hip from a sketch of the same name in a film that Michael Nesmith of the Monkees made in 1981 called Elephant Parts. I've been unable to find it online at all, which is a bummer. I'm sure it's quite a trip. Wow, Michael Nesmith, responsible for The Tragically Hip's name and Repo Man. And wow, what a man. <laughs> so Kingston, Ontario, just to, to provide some context, uh, Kingston, Ontario, it's a town of a couple hundred thousand people about three hours east of Toronto on Lake Ontario. It's best known for being the home of Sir John A. Macdonald, the first Prime Minister of Canada. Uh, it's also the home of Queen's University, my alma mater, and one of the oldest Canadian universities, and also one of the largest prisons in all of Canada. I went hey. to Queen's for my... <laughs> I went to Queen's for my undergraduate degree in 2000, and although I never had any hip sightings, most of the band continues to live there and could be spotted from time to time out in the community. So they started off gigging around Kingston, including several appearances in the pubs on the Queens campuses, because, yes, universities have their own pubs here on campus. It's wild. And they eventually expanded to playing all across Ontario. 
Then in 1988, the hit played at the Toronto Music Awards at Massey Hall, which is one of the city's very best venues. I love it there. And ended up getting their big break in a very weird way. During their second song, Gord Downey, who may have had a few too many beers at this point, swung the mic stand over his head. It fell apart, and the pieces flew all over the stage. So rather than fumbling around trying to recover, Gord just flung himself to the floor and improvised this bizarre routine where the cable just found its way back to the mic like a sperm and egg type of thing. (laughs) So the band's managers, Jake Gold and Alan Gregg, were mortified because one of the audience members happened to be Bruce Dickinson, not not the heavy metal singer, but the vice president of MCA. Yes, and that is the Bruce Dickinson. (laughs) Yeah, who had come up to Canada specifically to see the hip. But Dickinson turned out to be very impressed by the way that Gord recovered from that, and he told Golden Greg, I like that kid, he's got moxie. By the time we're finished, we'll all be wearing gold-plated underpants. (laughs) (laughs) Never questioned Bruce Dickinson. Anyhow, they convinced him to stay in Toronto for another day and see the hip's upcoming performance at the Horseshoe Tavern. That night in Toronto, with its checkerboard floors, impressed him enough to offer them a record deal on the spot. So then, their self-titled EP was released in 1987, and the two singles released from it made a little bit of a dent in Canadian radio, but it was the album Up to Here in 1989 where they really started to take off. There were four singles from that album, including New Orleans' Sinking, all of which got major radio play and are still fan favorites. Next up was Road Apples in 1991. Their album titles were so great, which got three more singles stuck in everybody's heads and hit number one on the Canadian albums chart. And then Fully Completely was their third studio album. And for this one, they wanted to change things up a little bit. So they switched to producer Chris. Rich, you looked up how to pronounce this name, didn't you? I don't remember what you found. Sangarides. Okay. And recorded the album at Battery Studios in London. Uh, Sangarides went for like a Mutt Lang kind of approach to this recording where he had everybody play or sing their parts in isolation and then mixed it all together after they'd gone back to Canada. But do not worry, this doesn't sound anywhere near as sterile and lifeless as Phil claims Hysteria does. It's just a lot less muddy than their previous albums were. So Fully Completely ended up being enormous in Canada. It sold 200,000 copies in three months, and in 2017 it was certified diamond, meaning it had sold a full million. Mm, And this is in a country whose population at the time was around 35 million. So suck it, Rich. I have to be an ugly American a little, at least a little bit. (laughs) I understand. Almost all of their subsequent albums also hit number one, but oddly, they only ever had one number one single, which was Ahead by a Century from Trouble at the Hen House in 1996. First thing we climb a tree, and maybe then we talk, or sit side. Listen to our thoughts, illusions of some day, cast in a golden light, no dress rehearsal, this is our
A lot of bands tend to drop in quality and or relevance after a while, but the hip never really did. Their albums post Phantom Power aren't as essential as the earlier ones, but they're all good. And so finally, the hip had a very bittersweet but very classy end to their story. Uh, Gord Downey was yet another celebrity victim of 2016, uh, along with David Bowie, Prince, George Michael, and so on. And Maurice White of Earth, Wind, and Fire. Be ever wonderful. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I remember I was on the uh, commuter train heading down to work one morning in May, uh, and I get a buzz on my phone, a notification from the news saying that Gord Downey had just announced he had been diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. It was a huge shock to the country because he was only in his early 50s. But, and this is the type of band that the Tragically Hip were, they immediately announced that they were going to do a short tour to say goodbye to all of their fans while Gord was still well enough to sing. Amanda and I had the incredible privilege of seeing them one last time in concert during that tour in Toronto. And while Gord was obviously ill, it was just a fantastic, emotionally charged experience, as Amanda mentioned before. The band went out on a high note. It felt like they were being allowed to close the book on the hip the way that they chose and the way that they wanted to. Gord Downey passed away in October 2017, and the surviving members said definitively that the hip were done. So while it's tough to talk about them in the past tense, I'm glad that they were able to finish their career in a way that was really respectful and final and really allowed them to pay tribute to their fans. Yeah. If anybody's interested in seeing those last shows, by the way, the final one, which was in Kingston, was broadcast on CBC, and I'm sure you can find it. Uh, The entire country basically shut down while it was on. There were several cities that hosted public viewings, including ours, but we just watched it at home. And even the Canadian Olympic team in Rio got together to watch it, uh, probably while dancing on the sand. And uh, the prime minister wasn't in it, was in attendance. Yep, he was. And then, you know, when Gord died, Canada pretty much went into national mourning. Uh, many radio stations played nothing but hip songs all day, and some of them even rebranded as Gord FM for the day. Uh, the town of Bob Cajun held a candlelight vigil, and the Maple Leafs hung up Bill Barilko's number in the Air Canada Centre. And we'll talk about why... They did all that later in this episode. It is really hard to overstate how much Canada loves the Tragically Hip. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my wife and I watched the live stream of the final concert, and uh, my wife's response was, uh, I don't even know this band, and this is getting to me. Like, it was just yeah. such a powerful experience. Yeah, at the end of the show, uh, which Rich and his wife were going to come to with us, but we couldn't get tickets for all of us. They went insanely fast. Uh, At the very end of it, Gord came back out on stage by himself for a good, like, five minutes, I think, Mm -hmm. just to let everybody love on him for a while. And it was thousands of people in the ACC just sobbing. Yeah, it was it was probably the most emotional moment I've ever seen in a concert. I've been to many, and I've been to those for bands that I like more than the Tragically Hip. But oh, wow. everybody in that stadium knew they were saying goodbye to Gord and thanking him for all of the music he had given us. Yeah, and and I don't think I'll probably ever have an experience like that again with a band. No, it it was unique, and it was. I'm so glad we were there. Well, on that cheerful note, let's. Uh kick off uh, fully completely by the Tragically Hip with Courage. For Hugh McLennan. Parentheses for Hugh McLennan. Whoever that is. Close parentheses. Close parentheses. (laughs) 
Holy crap, that song is so good. Uh, it is one of those songs that is immediately recognizable, and I'm always really, really happy to hear it. And not only did The Hip open the show with this song when we saw them on that last tour, but Rich and I opened the famous Discord and Rhyme karaoke party with this song, and we rocked it. <laughs> and in the yeah, second we verse, we sang Piss really loud because we're 12. I don't remember that. So I, I, don't, I don't remember how many drinks I'd already had by the beginning of our karaoke party. Uh, yeah, yeah, I very much enjoyed our performance, and it just felt like the right song. It did. It was really, really fun. Now, the way this album was recorded with everybody doing their parts separately led to unusually dull drum parts from Johnny Fay. Uh, just about every song has basically the same drum beat, emphasis on two and four, with very few fills. And it's not like he wasn't capable of doing more interesting drumming, so it's a little weird that everything here is so straightforward. But I would argue that this steady, no-frills style is an asset to this song, because with that start-and-stop vocal delivery, you need a really steady driving beat to keep the momentum up, and it really does that well. And there's a great bass line back there doing the same thing. I agree. Yeah, this was the third single released from the album, and it got to number 10 on the Canadian chart and also number 16 on the U.S. rock chart, which really surprised me. I don't remember ever hearing it in the States. Do you guys? I have never heard a Tragically Hip song in the States. (laughs) (laughs) I did on, um, like I said, 89X would broadcast across the river, so occasionally I would hear stuff like this. Mm -hmm. Not in California, I promise you. Probably not. Yeah. Whereas up here in Canada, even to this day, you cannot escape the song on the radio. It's easily one of the best songs the hip ever recorded. And it's just very representative of the bluesy, guitar-based rock and roll of the hip's early albums. Uh, As Amanda mentioned, what what has really changed, of course, is the production. It's far clearer than on the hip's first two albums. And the band has really gotten tight and And it's obvious this song just hangs together so well, musically and lyrically. It's driven by such a propulsive guitar and drum riff. Uh, Really, when you listen through this album, um, the word propulsive is, is a good word to use for pretty much every song on the album. This is a band that has matured. It's They've gelled together. At this point, they had been playing countless live shows for close to 10 years. And they knew what they wanted to say and how to express it. And they had finally found a producer that could harness that in the studio. When Gord Downey chimes in with watch the band through a bunch of dancers with an opening line like that, you can see why most hip concerts kicked off with this song. The lyrics are a little obscure, but not excessively so. And the chorus line, courage, it couldn't come at a worse time. That's just the type of earworm that kicks around for a long, long time after the song is done. Rich, what's your reaction to this? Well, first getting into the band, just like w- with the title, like the uh, I knew I was getting into a band that like didn't pull punches for audiences in other countries because they, they didn't just call it Courage. They called it Courage for Hugh McLennan. And I, I guess I'm about to find out who the hell Hugh McLennan is. But <laughs> but that leads me to something else. So like uh, you guys were talking a few times about like how uh, comparing the band to R.E.M., uh, uh, like especially like you know Rob Gord Downey and Michael Stipe, but I actually liken the band more to Midnight Oil, which is a, a very hmm. collaborative, like instrumentally proficient band that, that just happens to have a frontman Peter Garrett who just dominates everything. 
uh, like just lyrically and tonally and you just wouldn't have it any other way and part of that is that like well they're an Australian band and they'll just like really really proudly put like Australian references in their song titles like if Ned Kelly was king and Jimmy Sharman's boxers and just like something like this reminds me of that and the other thing I associate with the song is that it's a as, as Will said earlier it's prominently featured on the soundtrack of Adam McGoyan's 1997 film The Sweet Hereafter uh, in an arrangement by, by Michael Dana and sung by Sarah Pauly Watch the And by the way, if you're planning to have children, I recommend watching this movie before you do so. Yeah. <laughs> I have, Sean and I have both read the book and seen the movie, and we did that long before we had our daughter, and neither of us could stand to do it again. Yeah, it's an excellent movie, excellent book, but it's it's shattering. I think the word was used. It is a, a yeah. very tragic movie. I should open by saying that I know nothing about the history behind any of these songs uh, the way Sean does. I'm mostly here to say, oh, that one sounds like something off document or, oh, that one sounds like something off life's rich pageant. <laughs> so it's interesting to me to learn the actual stories and histories behind these songs without having to scroll through Kate Beaton's archive and thus saving <laughs> me from having to become literate in any way. Even if this song didn't have all that interesting research behind it, which Sean will explain in a moment, though, it would be a hell of a way to open this or any album. It's a it's just a perfect single that we should still routinely be hearing in supermarkets and gas stations, at least as often as we hear less deserving songs like Semi Charmed Life and You Get What You Give. <laughs> Those are great songs. Incorrect. What? No, no, no. <laughs> so I know the tension is is just killing everybody, but I, I think it's time that I let everyone know who Hugh McLennan was yes please allow each of you the listeners and allow each of you the listeners to become that insufferable twit at the cocktail parties that you're able to explain who this guy actually was um that's our that's our collective goal our (laughs) listeners are the type that attend a lot of cocktail parties yeah (laughs) or keggers whatever they might be Hugh McLennan uh, was a Canadian author who was born in Nova Scotia before the First World War. Uh, He was very much a product of what you might call the old English Canada. Uh, His dad was an impossibly strict Presbyterian physician, the type of guy that would probably use the phrase, idle hands are the devil's workshop, but use it (laughs) non-ironically. He grew up and... uh, became a a writer in the United States during the Depression, and then returned to Canada as an adult uh, to teach school at McGill University in Montreal and to write novels. Hugh realized that that many, um, uh, that very little modern literature had been written about the Canadian experience. And so throughout the 1950s and 60s, he wrote novels that were really about Canada and Canadians trying to find their way in the modern world. Up until that point, uh, Canada had regarded itself as as a part of the British Empire and very much a British country. And now with the end of the empire, they were searching for a new identity, uh, trying to define themselves against the Americans. Uh, his most famous novel, which was published just after World War II, was called Two Solitudes, 
which was about the differences between French and English Canada, which even today are very profound. Gord Downey adapted the lyrics for Courage uh, from another one of MacLennan's novels called The Watch That Ends the Night, which itself, uh, the title is taken from an old hymn uh, in the Church of England. And you've read at least one of Hugh McLennan's novels, right? How was it? Unreadable. <laughs> uh, no, that it, it, it's it's a little unfair to the book, but it's very much a product of early 1950s Canada. Even for myself, being a Canadian, it's it's challenging to read, and they're not the the most exciting novels in the world. It's very psychological, very focused on uh, uh, inner lives of characters, and when you don't really care that much about the characters, it's hard to be interested in their inner lives. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, if we're done with that, let's head out looking for a place to happen. single released from this album hit number 51 because as as far as the canadian public was concerned the hip were very much an albums band which is really weird to me Uh, but their singles didn't tend to chart very high while their albums almost always hit number one so this is a fantastic straight ahead rocker and again the drums aren't doing anything super unusual but on the other hand i am completely incapable of sitting still while this song is playing Fantastic beat, wonderful crunchy guitars, and a typically energetic vocal performance. Uh, Now, Rob Baker, who is credited as Bobby Baker on this album for some reason, is the Hip's lead guitarist, and he is terrific, in my opinion. He has said that one of his goals as a guitarist was to develop a distinctive sound so that people could immediately tell that it was him playing. And I'd say that he was at least somewhat successful at that. You know, he's not as recognizable as, say, Jimi Hendrix or Stevie Ray Vaughan. But when I first moved here, when a song came on the radio that I didn't recognize, I could almost always tell when it was the hip, even before Gord started singing. However, I believe that the Tragically Hip's true MVP was Rob Baker's hair. It is glorious. (laughs) I'm going to post a picture of him on our Twitter for you guys, and you can all have massive hair envy right along with me. Sort of like how Shane McGowan's teeth were the secret weapon of the (laughs) But in a very different way. Uh, compositionally, this is a, a little rougher, a little bit louder, and I absolutely love that chord change right before the chorus. It's It goes downward rather than up, which is a little bit more typical. And I, I guess it's not anything like super unexpected or innovative, but it's very, very satisfying. Well, I can't say that I necessarily agree that uh, Robbie Baker wholly developed a unique, distinctive lead guitar style. I mean, compared with the likes of, say, Kurt Kirkwood from the Meat Puppets or Paul Leary from the Butthole Surfers. 
to name two other bands who were active around that time. But he's got a nice sort of crispity, crunchity, peanut buttery mix of sounds and riffs that is very enjoyable and very prominent in this particular song. I like it a lot. Well, like I said, uh, I, my image of the band is so just dominated by Gord Downey that I never really like paid much attention to the individual band members before like just really mm-hmm. focusing on this album for this episode. So uh, I, I think that the band is very good, but I honestly have trouble telling which guitarist is which. Uh, like I know that Rob Baker is the lead guitarist nominally and uh, Langlois is uh, is the rhythm guitarist. But one, one thing I really love about the band is that they, to me, they don't really cleanly fall into like lead and rhythm patterns. Like mm-hmm. uh, like like Langlois is like often, he's not just strumming chords. He's like playing really creative lines that often like, I don't know, mirror and echo like what Baker is playing in interesting ways. I'm, I'm not a guitarist, so I can't really like say what is going on but like uh, I think that both of them are always generally doing something really cool which I like uh, you get a sense of like the collaborative way the band wrote songs uh, it wasn't just like one person dominating it, except for the lyrics of course yeah um, <laughs> uh, as for this song itself it, well but I like a good track too and this is a great track too it doesn't try to upstage either of the bigger hits surrounding it uh, but it has a great riff and a very very grammatically suspect title to, to catch your attention yeah <laughs> So this song uh, is at least partially about uh, the explorer Jacques Cartier, who we're told has a real bum's eye for clothes. And if you do see some paintings of him, uh, you know, he's, he's got the doublet and the hose and all the other 16th century fashions. So certainly uh, Gord is, is spot on with that reference. But this song is interesting because it's told at least partially um, from the point of view of the people who are already in Canada. So to back up a little bit, Cartier was the first explorer to sail down the St. Lawrence River, uh, discovered New France, which became Quebec, and um, met uh, some of the the First Nations, the native people that were there. One of my personal favorite lines in this is uh, clearly from the point of view of the natives when they say, no, you're not the first to show. We've all been here since God who knows. Um, this is a, probably a good good time early in the uh, episode to bring up uh, Gord Downey's uh, real passion and, and real history for activism on behalf of the Indigenous peoples of Canada. Um, to give a bit of background, w- when I was growing up in the Canadian school system in the 1990s, when we discussed uh, the history of, of what we call the First Nations, the, the Native peoples, uh, it, there was a, a huge undercurrent of well, they didn't get the, the best treatment from us, the Canadian settlers, but at least we didn't do to them what the Americans did to theirs, <laughs> which is a pretty common theme in, in a lot of Canadian history classes. It's a high uh, bar least, to clear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, over the last, I would say, 25 years, um, there's been a huge focus in Canada on the historical atrocities committed against the First Nations peoples the um, shameful conditions that many of them still live in today. And even as we're recording this, there's been a, uh, uh, a series of protests ac- across the country uh, concerning a pipeline that's being run through uh, several territories of the First Nations, and they feel that this is disrupting and uh, desecrating their, their sacred spaces. And so, you know, Gord Downey, really uh, threw himself into using his fame and his uh, publicity to to highlight the treatment of native Amer- uh, sorry of first nations and to do what he could to help improve their situation in fact 
at the very end of his life, uh, just after they, they completed uh, the tour for the Tragically Hip, he recorded and released an album called The Secret Path, uh, which is about a young boy who tried to escape from one of the infamous residential schools. Um, those are outside the scope of this podcast. Um, so let me just tell you that they were extremely bad and they are very easily Googleable if you want to know more. And I would encourage you to, uh, to, to know more about this very awful chapter in Canadian history. Yeah, if you, if you search for the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Project, you'll find out what you need to know. Uh, so in December 2016, after this album was released, uh, the Assembly of First Nations got together to honor Gord. He was given a, a spirit name from the Lakota people and just honored for his activism on behalf of that community. In fact, um, during the, the final concert in Kingston that uh, we've referenced before, uh, certainly one of the more profound moments was when uh, Downey stopped uh, one of the songs to call out uh, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister who's sitting in the audience, to demand that he and his government commit themselves to doing more to fulfill the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Committee recommendations and to bring the First Nations people into a uh, more equitable relationship with the rest of Canada. And uh, I will leave it up to you, the listener, to determine whether or not Justin Trudeau has fulfilled that uh, commitment. But when Gord Downey tells you to do something, I would certainly hop to it as fast as I possibly could. Narrator. (laughs) Well, anyway, if we're done looking for a place to happen, maybe we should check at the 100th Meridian. Where the Great Plains begin. such a fun song and a great representative sample of the hip's sound. Uh, the drumming does hold it back a little bit. This is one song that could really use some more fills and other interesting details, but the vocal is really great. Gord does a terrific half-spoken delivery that somehow works really well and doesn't drag the song down as it might have with someone with less charisma. This song was always freaking fantastic live, and during the spoken section in the middle, um, which has, he mentions garbage bag trees, which he mentioned also in looking for a place to happen. And I'm not quite sure what garbage bag trees are, but I love that phrase and I love that he used it twice. He would famously turn this into a real long rambling stream of consciousness story that he generally just came up with right on the spot. We'll try to find a couple examples of this for you and put them in the show notes. So I think this song is probably a good compatibility test. If you like it, you're probably going to like the Tragically Hip in general. However, it does feature what I consider to be probably their weakest point, and that is the backing vocals. They tend to be very thin and anemic, 
you rarely get any vocal harmonies. I think it was generally Gord Sinclair and Paul Inglaude during the doing the backup singing, and they're quite good at their instruments, but not so much at the vocals. I mean, which is fair, but it is the one aspect of the hips music that I consistently wish were a little bit stronger. Uh, but despite that, this was the fourth single, got to number 18 on the Canadian charts. So this is just a fun, fun, fun rocker. And I have to say the line, a generation is so much dumber than its parents, <laughs> is a really great line. And um, like Amanda said, if you don't, this is a very representative song of the Tragically Hip. If you don't like the way this song is delivered uh, with the, the stream of consciousness style lyrics, you're probably not going to like the Tragically Hip in general. Now, if you uh, just grab your handy globe, as we all, all have on hand, if you grab your handy globe, <laughs> you can find that the 100th Meridian uh, is really where the Great Pains do begin. I grew up in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is uh, just directly north of North Dakota. You know, again, just like the, the, prairie, the, the Great Plains states of the United States, it's very much a flat place. Winnipeg has been chosen four years in a row by the London Times as the world's capital of there are so many jokes about theft being impossible in Winnipeg because you could see the thief running away for up to three days. Um, and and the, one, the one story from my childhood was that if we wanted to go tobogganing or sledding in the winter, um, we could go to the city parks where they had bulldozed hills, artificial hills for us to go sledding on. Oh. But every summer, we'd pile into my dad's beautiful 1986 Chevy Caprice and drive east uh, through Ontario to visit family. And right about the Manitoba-Ontario border, kind of just directly north from the tip of Lake, Lake Superior, you would hit the 100th meridian, and all of a sudden it would dramatically change from the Great Plains into the, um, uh, into the Canadian Shield with forests, with mountains, uh, rock outcroppings everywhere. So it was really quite a dramatic change. Um, there were times that I f would fall asleep in the car and wake up having passed over the meridian, and you'd think you'd been dropped in another part of the planet. And oh. so that's what I always think of when I think of this song, is, is just being a kid, driving through the plains, and then just hitting that sort of invisible line and, uh, and passing over the 100th meridian. And finally, I should also add that the song's best line is definitely when the narrator sings, get Rai Cooter to sing my eulogy when he describes his ideal funeral. And so far as I know, uh, Rai Cooter did not, in fact, sing at Gord Downey's funeral. Promise me they bury me someplace I don't want to be. You'll dig me up and transport me unceremoniously away from the swollen sea breeze, garbage bag trees, whispers of the sea. Of enormity and lower me slowly and sadly and properly. Get Rakuter to sing my eulogy at the Hundred Meridian. And Sean, we've been together for what, 15 years now? Yep. I have never seen you happier than when you're air drumming to At the Hundredth Meridian. That is correct. <laughs> yeah. Unless it's when you're air drumming to New Orleans is sinking. That is also correct. <laughs> Rich, what about you? The 100th Meridian West is a geographic line of longitude that crosses north-south through North America. It is of special significance to Canada and the United States because it marks the rough western boundary of humid air from the Gulf of Mexico, meaning that it is, indeed, where the Great Plains begin. 
For this reason, the region west of the meridian has been extensively dammed and irrigated because otherwise it is an arid desert inhospitable to human life. For more on this subject, I recommend Mark Reisner's book Cadillac Desert. And for more great urban and regional planning songs, I recommend My City Was Gone by The Pretenders, Allentown by Billy Joel, and of course, Subdivisions by Canada's own favorite sons, Rush. Thank you, climatologist Rich. <laughs> As for the song itself, yeah, I love it. It's It was one of the first ones I really liked by the band. Uh, Gordani's white boy rapping, uh, like he pulls that off the same way like he somehow managed to pull off a fedora while he was performing live. So <laughs> It's magic. He's a magic man, or he was. Rest in <laughs> peace. Yeah. It's like David Byrne in Cross-Eyed and Painless. He just mm-hmm. <laughs> got away with it. Um, I don't have much to add, except that I think it's kind of a dick move that Ry Cooter didn't show up and sing at Gord Downey's funeral. I agree. Regardless of whether he actually... The two albums of Gord Downey, or uh, Ry Cooter rather, that I own are instrumental, so I don't know if he actually sings, but he should have made an exception. Yeah, this was so, practically an engraved invitation. Yeah, so to hell with you, Rod Cooter. Engraved in vinyl. <laughs> I'm not even going to pronounce your name right. (laughs) Well, now that we've damned one person to hell, we'll move on to Pigeon Camera. That's not all that's getting damned west of the 100th Meridian. Uh, Uh I see what you did there. This house, it has its politics. Over there, that's my room. like a good spot to talk about Gord Downey as a lyricist. As songwriting was a very collaborative process for the hip, and their songs are generally credited to the entire band. However, while they were recording Road Apples, the album prior to this, Downey announced that he was not going to sing anybody else's lyrics anymore. Like, the rest of the band could write all the lyrics they wanted, but Gord was not going to sing them. Did he just walk in and declare that? I think so, yeah. According to Gord Sinclair, who wrote some of the lyrics on their first two albums, this was a relief because they all felt like Downey was the best at it anyway, and they were fine with just leaving it up to him. He was a very unconventional lyricist and a very good one. Downey's lyrics often read like little short stories set to music. They don't always scan well, and he wasn't necessarily worried about rhyming. And often, as Sean said before, they don't really make much sense. But boy, could he sell them. And that is one of the aspects that make the hip unique. He was very good at symbolism and imagery and at using just a few words to create a mood. Uh, That's definitely evident on this album. I really think that the next hip album, Day for Night, is where he hit his stride as a lyricist. But um, absolutely, you know, he was very, very evocative and very good at painting just little word pictures of of incidents or people. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Uh, this particular set of lyrics is uh, fairly cryptic, but I'm pretty sure it's about incest. This is one of those cases where I kind of wish I hadn't looked up the words to the song. <laughs> I did not pick up on this until I was listening closely to prepare for the episode. And then I went online and looked up the lyrics like, am I really hearing that? But it, it's implied that the pigeon camera is being used to spy on the narrator's sister's bedroom. And there's something we could no longer contain. And then there's that bit about, I didn't want this. It's horrific. I'm embarrassed. And seems pretty clear. What's a pigeon camera? Is that an actual thing? Yeah, I don't remember exactly what it was. Rich, did you looked that up, didn't you? It was used for spying. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a cute little camera attached to a pigeon used to spy on people. Yeah. Look at it. Look it up. It's adorable. This this song, this, this song is not adorable. Let me just. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, if you look up a picture of a little pigeon with a camera strapped to its chest, it's really cute. But they were used like during World War II, I think. Mm -hmm. As for the song's musical aspects, I like it, but maybe it's not super remarkable. Like the guitar hook is very pretty and a little unexpected. I like how it shifts back and forth from minor to major keys. But it's it, it's a little slight, maybe a little underbaked. It's fine. But I wouldn't necessarily rate it higher than fine. To me, this one sounds like one off R.E.M.'s Reckoning. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a beautiful song, and it's probably my favorite on the album. Although I admit that I hadn't really studied the lyrics, which are creepier than I'd realized. Yeah, they're they're alarming. And I know I'm probably irking a lot of our Canadian listeners by talking so much about R.E.M., but I think this album in particular sounds a lot like their touch points, like Document and Green. And that's interesting. I had never even thought I never really thought about that. Really? Yeah. When you make the comparison here. I think. Well, I think the Tragically Hip possesses plenty of other influences, too. Like there's a good chunk of Neil Young in there for Mm -hmm. one, I think. So it's not like a, a ripoff when you open a Mercury Rev album and you basically hear a crappier Flaming Lips album. <laughs> but I, I do feel like I should emphasize that the, the hip are their own band. They've just got, you know, influences like any other band, except mm-hmm. for Mikachu and the Shapes, who I highly recommend. Yeah, getting into the band, well, I was also a huge R.E.M. fan as uh, just in high school, like concurrently with getting into the Tragically Hip. And I thought of Downey as just like weirder Canadian Michael Stipe for a long time. But Mm -hmm. I think it was more just that he doesn't really, like I said, he doesn't pull punches with like deep cultural references that only Canadians will get. Uh, Whereas in Michael Stipe's case, I promise that Americans are just as confused by charades, pop skill, water hyacinth, named by a poet, imitation of life as everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for yeah. sure. There, 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 there is some truth in comparing the Tragic Hip to R.E.M. I can definitely see it. And it was a fairly frequent comparison when these songs were coming out. Uh, mm-hmm. But definitely there's enough artistic space between the two of them that that Downey's really able to make these uh, lyrics his own and the band I think in general was probably a little superior to REM in the in the just the technical proficiency that they had and the tightness they had as a band so uh, but but absolutely I can see the comparison between the two it's it's not uncommon and, and you're not wrong to make it yeah Will is about to reach right through that computer and punch you oh 
<laughs> and you can line up like all of the individual like pieces of each band for days. Like I mean, like Mike Mills mops the floor with the backing singers in tra- the Tragically Hip. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for sure. And honestly, the most obvious point of comparison for me is that Gord Downey and Michael Stipe sound extremely similar. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. their their particular voices just they in the way they grew up, their biology, they do sound a lot alike. Yeah. And if you listen to Downey's speaking voice, I mean, it's clear that he's not it's not an affectation. That's just what his voice sounds like. He wasn't trying to imitate Stipe. It's just a right. A great big coincidence. But yeah, that I mean, honestly, that was one of the first things I noticed. Like, that guy sounds exactly like Michael Stipe. Yeah. As for the lyrics, they were better for me when I didn't understand them. Yeah. (laughs) Foreshadowing. (laughs) Let's move on now to Lionized. You can't hide your lionized. (laughs) I just got that. (laughs) You can't hide that you're lionized. Features one of Gord's more startling opening lines, "Cold wind blowing over your private parts," which which always just makes me say, "But why? What what <laughs> happened? What are these circumstances? I'm not sure if I want to know." It, but it's a vivid enough image that he uses it again later in the song. And <laughs> you did from, it again? Yeah, right. <laughs> Didn't you learn the first time? <laughs> I do like this song, especially the chorus where you get some fairly rare vocal harmonies, but I don't really have a lot to say about this one. It's it's a simple, enjoyable rock song. And I've said this before, but, you know, music does not have to be super original and innovative in order to be fun to listen to. Not everything has to break new ground. It can just be a solid, competent, fun rock song. Yeah, I think of songs like this as basically a compositional straight line, like written for fans just to like zone out and bop their heads along at concerts. Yeah. Uh, Like for me, the platonic ideal of this type of song is uh, Running Down a Dream by Tom Petty. And honestly, half of all Tom Petty songs. like (laughs) Tom Petty was good at this type of song. Yeah, he was. Another great man we lost. Mm -hmm. What a sad episode. What about you, Sean? Uh, Yeah, this is definitely a fine song. Uh, I enjoy it and and. I think that the um, the fact that the opening line is a cold wind blowing over your private parts turns what <laughs> is maybe an average song into actually a really catchy and very... It gets your attention. Yeah, it, it, it definitely. It, Gord, Gord Downey always knew how to just turn that right type of phrase to take what might be an otherwise less remarkable song and into something that makes you pay attention. And... 
this is a song where it is um, one that you will not forget easily, even if it's a slightly disgusting way that he makes you remember. <laughs> but other than that, you know, a fairly unremarkable uh, song, good for what what ails you, but uh, uh, really, uh, you know, really not one that sticks in my mind a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. This is the sort of song that I listen to, and I think. I can totally hear them thinking to themselves, we've got ourselves a hell of a song here. And then the final product lacks. <laughs> wow, what a scoop. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but then the, the final product lacks either like a vital guitar counterpoint or a melodic turn or something. Uh-huh. Cold Wind Blowing Over Your Private Parts is indeed the sort of opening line that makes up for a lot of shortcomings, but <laughs> this song, it feels like it's missing something subtle but important that maybe maybe a band like Midnight Oil or someone could have better yeah. lo- locked in on. Yeah, maybe. I like how much of the discussion of the song is, there is a line that says, Cold Wind Blows Over Your Private Parts. <laughs> well, it's that's... By far the most remarkable element of it. Yeah. Like, I I like the song, but I feel like somehow it doesn't live up to its potential. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. Yeah, the cold wind could have been closer to, like, absolute zero or something. (laughs) (laughs) That was the problem. (laughs) You should have specified how cold that wind actually was. Yeah, it was was so cold you could just hit it with a hammer and it would shatter. (laughs) Anyway, if if we're done discussing hypothermic genitals we're gonna go on to locked in the trunk of a car morning broke out the back side of a truck the end of a line a real rainbow like an inlux where you could see and became chronologically fucked This is so good. Mm-hmm. Yep. It it took me a little while to warm up to this one because it's one of those songs that it, it doesn't seem like much on the surface, but when you listen closer, it really opens up. It's very tense and mean and growly, which is absolutely appropriate for the lyrics. And I think the guitar solo is pretty great. One thing the Tragically Hip were really good at was the slow burn, and this is one of them. Like, I did my best when I was figuring out how to clip this, but you really need to listen to the whole thing to fully get it. Yeah, it's got such a build. It does. 
the lyrics are really scary when you listen to them carefully and we're inspired by a few different things. One of which Sean is going to tell us about in a couple of minutes. It's a story told from the point of view of a murderer and evidently was at least partly inspired by the protagonist of Crime and Punishment. It it starts off obliquely describing committing the murder and then more specifically figuring out how to get rid of the evidence. Then he can't stop thinking about it. I destroyed the map, even thought I forgot it. However, every day I'm dumping the body. And later on, he screams, let me out a few times. Uh, Gord was quoted as saying that the song made him a little uneasy and he wasn't always comfortable acknowledging it, let alone singing it. Uh, this actually was the first single released from the album, got to number 11 on the Canadian charts because it rules. Yeah, this is uh, this is a, a dark, scary, tense masterpiece of a song. I really think that um, as I was listening to this album again more intentionally over the last uh, few months, this really is a standout of the album for me. And and all the more so because this is sometimes overshadowed by the more popular songs uh, elsewhere on the album. It is um, certainly one of the, the, the blackest uh, pictures that Gord ever painted with his lyrics. Uh, it is a very, very uh, uncomfortable song. Like This is not one that you, you would want to listen to late at night. It's just got a very dark groove. And I can completely mm-hmm. understand why he would be uncomfortable thinking about it or, or, or acknowledging it or singing it in concert. The title of the song was uh, at least partially inspired by a uh, notorious episode in Canadian history, the October Crisis of 1970 in Quebec. So just to p- paint a bit of context, uh, Quebec had been a very rural society up until the 1960s. It was heavily dominated by the Roman Catholic Church, uh, by a very uh, repressive uh, nationalistic government. And um, it it radicalized during the 1960s along with many other parts of North American society. And a um, a radical wing of the Quebec uh, nationalist movement uh, was a Marxist group called the FLQ, uh, which was French for the Quebec Liberation Front. And they were, uh, they took inspiration from other revolutionary groups and they conducted a bombing campaign uh, in Quebec for most of the decade, uh, which, and actually detonated close to a thousand bombs in in, uh, mailboxes, uh, in government buildings. And in October, 1970, this campaign culminated with the group uh, kidnapping a British diplomat named James Cross and then the deputy premier of Quebec, Pierre Laporte, from their homes and holding them for ransom. Uh, They wanted members of their group to be released from prison in return for the release of the hostages and for them to get safe passage to Cuba. So in response, uh, Pierre Trudeau, uh, Justin's father, who was the prime minister at the time, uh, had his government enact the War Measures Act, which was effectively martial law. And his uh, and the RCMP and the security forces uh, detained nearly 500 people with ties to the uh, the terrorist group. They were arrested and held without trial for several months. And there's a famous video that we'll link to in the show notes. That's that's certainly one one of the more dramatic confrontations in Canadian history, and it's maybe the only dramatic confrontation in Canadian (laughs) history. Uh, and it, it'll show uh, Pierre Trudeau walking into the Parliament buildings in Ottawa to, to sit down with the government and pass this bill. A CBC reporter confronts him and, and starts to question the decision to do this. So Trudeau, uh, with a smirk on his face without raising his voice, just completely dominates and 
tears apart the, the reporter's line of questions and, uh, um, you know, it culminates with the reporter asking the prime minister, how far would you be prepared to go to defend the civil order? And Trudeau smirks and says to him, just watch me. And so say what you will about certain contemporary politicians. I've never seen a politician so openly contemptuous of a journalist's questions. And so anyway, uh, Trudeau's actions stunned Canadian society, uh, which had suffered very little from the social unrest of the 60s. Uh, my parents were teenagers in Ottawa. They remember soldiers marching through the streets with, with tanks. However, Trudeau's gamble paid off. It had the intended effect. The, the, the FLQ was sort of uh, pressured into releasing James Cross. And unfortunately, Pierre Laporte had been, was murdered. He was strangled to death and his body was left locked in the trunk of a car at the Montreal airport. Uh, but the use of violence had completely alienated the rest of society, even uh, the Quebec sovereignty movement from this group. And so as a result, uh, it collapsed and, and mostly dispersed. But that, that's a long digression, but it's actually kind of a interesting one to help explain some of the context for where uh, the the hip got the title for this song. In case you think only the present is completely nuts. Yeah. yeah. One thing about getting into the band from the States is that I had no idea which songs by the band were the singles and like the big like Canadian anthems. And some of them were pretty obvious, like Courage and Little Bones and like Fireworks, just like the, the ones that were just clearly like really catchy and just arena ready. But I had no idea that this one was a big song and much less the first single from this album, <laughs> like yeah. until just very recently. Like, in fact, it was when it was included in the band's farewell concert where all of the band's most popular albums were uh, represented by like uh, the individual four song mini sets. And this was included in the fully completely set. Yeah. Um, and now that I'm paying more attention to it, this might be my favorite song on the album, or at least it's like, you know, three way tied for it or something. Uh, it's such a great answer in just one single song to what like Downey brings to the band like in the Mick Jagger tradition he doesn't play an instrument and I don't know I think that there's like a tendency in like uh, in rock fandom to like make fun of the lead singer who doesn't play an instrument but it, it in Downey's case, I wouldn't want him to because it would just distract from his ability to just put his whole self into a performance like this, it, like from beginning to end. Like it's it, mm-hmm. he's a, he's just so good here. Yeah. And we've all seen them live at least once. I mean, Gord mm-hmm. worked in those concerts. He wasn't just standing yeah, there yeah. singing the songs. He threw his entire self into all of those performances. It was incredible to see. Yeah. Do we have the clip from Almost Famous where Jason Lee says, I find the one guy in the audience not getting off and I make him get off? We should. (laughs) And I make him get off. Actually, that you can print. That's right. (laughs) That was what Gord did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember at the show that uh, Amanda and Sean and I went to, he his shtick was he had a pocket full of handkerchiefs. Oh, yeah. And he would... Like every three minutes, he would blot the sweat off his forehead because he's a a bald gentleman and then throw the the handkerchief into the crowd to the very appreciative (laughs) audience members who love to have his icky excretions. At any rate, he was yeah, he was a great front man. And if anyone ever asked me to point them to a song that builds from hopeless to almost tear-inducingly powerful, I would point them towards someone else because I do not like having conversations. (laughs) (laughs) But I would be thinking about this song. In addition to being a pretty brilliant 
rundown of noted clubbing advocate Pierre Trudeau and his actions in the 70s to- totally sounds like J.J. Bittenbinder's famed strategy of <laughs> street smarts. <laughs> trunk nappies, busting out a taillight, waving at passing cars till someone stops to help, and then turning the tables on their abductors. So I took a money clip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to need a footnote on that one. All you John Mulaney fans will know what we're talking about. We will absolutely link this in the show notes. But yeah, this is another example of Gord's capabilities as a lyricist. One of my favorite parts of this whole album is the line in this song, it's better for us if you don't understand. Yes. It is Mm -hmm. so eloquent. Yeah, I I enjoyed that one a lot. And even if, you know, the, the title is more about Pierre Trudeau than the lyrics are, it sounds a lot like something that Pierre Trudeau or some some sort of greasy politician would say. Yeah, it kind of does. Yeah. All right. So we'll go from the arguably best song on the album to we'll go to. Hmm. <laughs> song but i i think i enjoy it better in theory than in execution it's oddly lifeless and i think Mm -hmm. if they'd been able to play it together it would have worked out a lot better i did find a live performance of this from a show in germany in 1993 and it sounds really good you know they actually found the groove which the recording process for this album didn't really allow for that's a good point. Yeah, I'll fully admit this is probably the the weakest song on the album. And I think Amanda raises a good point that this may have just been a song that was better live or mm-hmm. uh, may, may have needed to just percolate a little longer so they could find the right groove. But it, I, I was thinking about this particular song and I had no memory of it. And to be mm-hmm. honest, I'm not even sure if I remember it even being on the album. So... That's probably all I really can say about it. <laughs> yeah, I think it really illustrates where Chris Sangaridis' production just doesn't work. Like, it works for a lot of the album. Like, the big, open, like, booming arena sound he gives to it, like, where every instrument is in an isolation chamber and is able to kind of uh, just ring out and take up all the space it needs to. It works mm-hmm. really well for the anthems, but on a really, on, like, a more warm, casual song like this, all of the energy gets sucked out. And, uh, like, poor Johnny Faye, he ends up sounding like a metronome on here. yeah. I will uh, link in the show notes that performance that I found from the concert in Germany. It was good. And it's pretty obvious that Gord is wasted, which probably also didn't hurt. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll move on from that unforgivable piece of filler to fully, completely... (laughs) 
really good bass line in this one. Oh, yeah. take for this album i've i've actually never really warmed up to this song i like <gasps> i know i know i'm terribly sorry sean's filing the divorce papers right now um, <laughs> i i do like the guitar hook a lot and it's a good instrumental arrangement but unlike courage i find that this start and stop vocal delivery kind of drags it down for me i do mm. think the guitars sound really great it's the and the bass line is terrific but for some reason this is a case where i like most of the component parts but the whole just does nothing for me fair enough funny i'm gonna to have to disagree with my loving wife and partner and say <laughs> that i actually think this is one of gord downey's better vocal deliveries on the entire album uh it just really highlights the fact that He's got a great singing voice, but he's able to deliver reasonably complicated lyrics that may not always scan perfectly well and do so in a way that really uh, keeps the song moving forward. Uh, and and I will agree, the bass line is fantastic. Um, the, the, the guitar approach with the two dueling guitars is really cool. And there are... Uh, while the, the, this uh, song doesn't have too many memorable, memorable images, there are a few just great hooks and turns of phrase that, that keep you interested. It reminds me a lot of Young Turks by Rod Stewart for some reason. Really? <laughs> it sounds a lot. Yeah, it sounds to me like a song that would be playing at a mechanic shop while you've been sitting there for 90 minutes for a simple oil change. I have heard the song in those exact circumstances at least a half a dozen times. Yeah, I like it, though. I well, I like Young Turks, too. I, I do, too. But I like the Motown song by Rod Stewart. <laughs> Bring over some of your old Motown records. Yeah. Uh, as for Fully Completely, I had a before I had the album, I had an MP3 of this song and I played it a lot. I, I love this one. It's probably tied with Locked in the Trunk of a Car for my favorite. Uh, and actually, like a, you all have mentioned uh, Gord's like stop start vocal performance on here. I, I don't really notice him on this song for once. Like for what he's usually the center of attention and he's he's great here because he's always great. Uh, but this is one of the songs where I actually like really lean toward the band's performance like like I like all of the guitar interplay on here like I always do but here it gives the song like kind of an uneasy tension like you're swaying kind of like back and forth on a ship or something mm. yeah and I like the way that Paul Langlois is playing on the riff but whereas like Baker is kind of like a I don't know like I, I like the part where 
Baker is riffing, but then like for just a few seconds, he like starts playing the same riff as the bass riff. I didn't notice that. I might have to listen to it more closely. Yeah. And I also like, well, the end of the song, I, I like that the song doesn't just end with the chorus or a fade out or something traditional, but instead like chooses to like release all of the tension that's been building up, sort of like potential mm-hmm. energy turning into yeah. kinetic energy. Uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, for some reason, the hip keep reminding me of Midnight Oil, but another song that does this by Midnight Oil is their awesome cover of Russell Morris's The Real Thing. It's a neat way to end a song, and I just wanted to bring up Midnight Oil again. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a complicated one, and it's I, I I think its position on the album is is proper, especially after the filler of Will Go To. Yeah, I I I approve, and we will move on now to Fifty Mission Cap. a song about hockey which you would expect from a canadian band but really it's about being a phony like holden caulfield would have hated this guy the narrator tells you this neat story and then admits that he just straight up stole it off a hockey card and then you have that titular 50 mission cap Uh, these were special caps that were issued to elite bomber pilots in world war ii and they would get squashed by the pilot's helmets and headphones. So having this very beat up elite cap was a major status symbol, but apparently it was not cool for the front of it to be crushed. So to keep it from collapsing, they would use like a playing card to prop it up. So what this guy has done is squash up somebody else's 50 mission cap, and then he stuck a hockey card up in the front of it. And then he's such a fake, he didn't even bother to write a second verse. He just repeats the first one again that he stole off the hockey card. It's just, this is a great big fake set to a really good beat. (laughs) 
And the Maple Leafs actually have retired Bill Barilko's number, but every time the hit played at the Air Canada Center, which got renamed last year, but I don't remember what it is now. The Scotiabank Arena. The Scotiabank Arena. All right. Well, it was the ACC then. Uh, every time the hip were there, they would hang Barilko's banner from the ceiling. It was there when we saw them on their last tour. And as we mentioned before, they hung it up on the day that Gord Downey died as well. Uh, this was the second single, hit number 40 on the Canadian charts. So I love, love, love the song. It is such a great, straightforward, kick-ass rocker. And it's one of the hip's very best. Uh, always a fan favorite at the concerts. Uh, it kicks off with just such a propulsive, powerful riff and an unforgettable set of images. Uh, and I should add that I always used uh, playing cards from my parents' card decks uh, for my bike, um, which always irritated them when they went to play Euchre and Hearts and uh, all of the cards were bent. Uh, but a lot of my friends did indeed use hockey cards uh, to, to make that noise on their bikes. Um, and now... The great thing is there is a story behind this, and it's completely straightforward and completely true. Uh, Bill Barilko was a hockey player for the Leafs in the late 40s and early 50s. He grew up in uh, Sudbury. His dad was a, a miner in the uh, nickel mines up there. And uh, he really did score, score the final goal, which won the, cup for the, the Stanley Cup for the Leafs in 1951. After the celebrations, uh, he decided to get away from the, the city for a while, chartered a plane with a friend and went on a fishing trip up north to just south of Hudson's Bay and then completely disappeared. Nobody found him. Uh, but 11 years later, um, somebody stumbled across the wreckage of the plane. Somehow they had crashed and killed both men instantly. And as the song says, the Leafs didn't win a single Stanley Cup until 1962, the year that he was discovered. Have just, they won any more since? Uh, they won one more in 67, and then that's been it. All right. Is he discovered again? Uh, that's a really sore point in Toronto, so if you come <laughs> visit here, just try not to bring it up. Yeah, whose body do they need to discover <laughs> in order for them to win again? Yeah. Uh, who knows? <laughs> But actually, the really sweet thing, um, once the song became popular, uh, Bill Barilko's wid widow wrote to the band and let, the, let them know that she was actually a really big fan of the, the song and the fact that her husband was getting so much attention years after he had passed away. And so what they did was they invited her to attend some of their concerts. They would always bring her backstage. She would always go visit them when they were in town. And she did pass away in the late 90s, but uh, it was just a really sweet story that they, that they took her in like that. Mm-hmm. This. Well, I know that this song is about more than just hockey, but I still really appreciate that the hip have like several honest to God hockey songs because you, you don't really have like, well, you have this there. You have fireworks. There's one on the World Container album called The Lonely End of the Rink, which is a title that I've always loved because you don't really have like the great American band like writing, you know, great American baseball pop songs. And no, Centerfield does not count. That song is stupid. <laughs> I like Centerfield. <laughs> We'll see if that stays in. It's a perfect impersonation. Yeah. My wife says it sounds like Marge Simpson. Uh, but anyway, I've always loved the soaring chorus on this song, which has like kind of the same transcendent sense of release as like, say, like Cheap Trick's Surrender or Cheap Trick's Dream Police or maybe just Cheap Trick in general. 
Um, and Amanda, I love your point that it's kind of a BS anthem because that's even kind of reflected in Downey's delivery now that I think about it. Because uh, the first oh, yeah. and second verses of the song are basically the same. But the first time Downey says it, he's much more muted. Like he's like literally reading it off of the card. Uh, and then the second time he's basically shouting it from the rooftops with like all these embellishments from the backing vocalists. And then he. Yeah, you're right. Conven- yeah. And then he conveniently leaves out that he got it from a hockey card the second time around. It- it's really, you're really right. clever. Yeah, I didn't pick up on that. That's great. Yeah, the second verse is like the revised historical version of the first verse, and uh, <laughs> it's really clever. And I think I, I think the song is about a phony, uh, but it's also uh, it's also just like a neat riff on just myth making in general and how just like yeah. stories get revised. Huh. Uh, so that's what that's I got great. on Fifty Mission Cap. I worked it in <laughs> to look like that. That's <laughs> that's a lot better than anything I had. So. <laughs> I'm going to just move on to uh, Wheat Kings. Sundown in the Paris of the Prairie Wheat Kings of all treasures buried and all you hear are the rusty breezes pushing around the weather vane Jesus sees the killer's face maybe it's someone standing Killer's place. Twenty years for nothing. Well, that's nothing new. Besides, no one's interested in something you didn't do. We kings and pretty things. Let's just see. Other people might bring up A Head by a Century or Bob Cajun or Fiddler's Green, but this, in my opinion, is the very best ballad the hip ever wrote. Uh, just fantastic, haunting lyrics, a great earworm of melody, and just a brilliant arrangement centered around a slowly strummed acoustic guitar. Before I get to the story, and of course there is a story behind this, I want to highlight the third verse in this song, which the the lyrics of which I think are among Downey's very best. And they go, There's a dream he dreams when the high school is dead and stark. It's a museum, and we're all locked up in it after dark. Where the walls are lined, all yellow, gray, and sinister, hung with pictures of our parents' prime ministers, wheat kings and pretty things, Wait and see what tomorrow brings. And you don't have to have a direct connection to those lyrics just to... What an amazing set of images from just such simple words. And now I should add, I did go to a school where the halls were lined with pictures of my parents' prime ministers, as well as the queen. Uh, But even if you didn't have that experience... It's just such an unforgettable set of images. Oh, yeah, you can see exactly what he's describing. It just paints such a chilling picture of how alone and alienated the narrator is. 
the community institutions that he's supposed to be a part of have abandoned him and he's left alone in a terrifying and empty world that he has no connection to. And that leads me into the story behind the song, which is reasonably well known in Canada. This song is about David Milgard. Uh, David Milgard was a teenager in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. At the age of 16 in 1969, he was arrested and charged with the murder of a nurse named Gail Miller. Uh, he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison the next year. But from the start, there were significant concerns that he was innocent and that the police had ignored evidence that pointed to other suspects in the area. Uh, Milgard's mother in particular continued to press politicians and the Justice Department to have the case reviewed. Finally, after people had applied enough pressure, the case was reopened and the Saskatchewan government entered a stay in the case, which meant that Milgard was released in 1992 after spending 23 years behind bars. Uh, in the inquiry that followed, uh, DNA evidence proved conclusively that he was innocent. His conviction was overturned and he received a settlement of $10 million uh, from the government for the injustice. And fortunately, the same DNA testing did uh, point towards another suspect. Uh, it, uh, he confessed to the crime uh, and then was arrested and sentenced to life in prison. So today, uh, Milgard lives in Calgary. He's now in his late 60s, and he works as a social worker. He keeps a low profile, but he's spoken many times of the agony that he and his family went through. And so this was a, uh, I remember this being a huge story in the news. This was the first time in Canadian history that DNA evidence was really used to overturn a, a major uh, miscarriage of justice. And so that obviously inspired um, Gord Downey to write one of his most unforgettable sets of lyrics and the band to record one of their very best songs and Downey's lyrics and I just want to point out uh before I finish up here Gord Downey in general really really used some of his most powerful songs to highlight injustices or areas of Canadian history that were overlooked uh he, he always spoke out against a kind of willful blindness by Canadian society in favor of a, a self-image that we have as this diverse, multicultural, tolerant society. Uh, and particularly with the First Nations, but also, also with cases like this, uh, Canadians have always tried to ignore past events that contradict this image. And Milgard's story, I think, really stands for the sort of cultural amnesia that Downey spent uh, most of his career trying to cure. And, and just what a fantastic way to do it uh, with a song like this. Amanda, what do you uh, what do you think about that? It, well, Sean is absolutely right. This is one of their very, very best songs. Uh, first of all, it's just gorgeous to listen to with some killer acoustic guitar work and a remarkably restrained and emotional vocal from Downey. It's it's honestly, it's the kind of song you can just put on repeat for a while. And in fact, I have done just that on several occasions. It's a very small song from a musical standpoint with very little percussion, but you get plenty of rhythm from the guitar and the bass keeps it moving. It does build up as the song goes on, but it's very subtle and it's very, very effective. And as Sean said, this might be Downey's very best lyrical effort. And as we've demonstrated, that's really saying a lot. Um, Sean got into what his favorite lines were, but I want to point out mine, what I think is the best. It's in the, in the second verse that we heard where he says, 20 years for nothing. Well, that's nothing new. Besides, no one's interested in something you didn't do. That line is, it's so simple and devastating. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, 
I'm not, I'm not personally crazy about the the arrangement or the the melody or anything, but the lyrics are just so shattering. It's impossible to look away or listen mm-hmm. listen away, I guess. In that sense, it reminds me of this is a weird comparison, but Frank Black has a song called "The Last Stand of Shazeb and Lieb," which is about uh, a similar kid who is in high school who he, I forget either was murdered or was convicted of murder unfairly, but it's they make a great one-two punch if that's the sort of thing you're interested in. Hmm. Rich, I might be committing a fan felony here, but this one's just never jumped out at me, honestly. And uh, really, yeah. And I read all of your uh, like comments on it, and just uh, and read that it was a fan favorite, and listened to it over and over again, and just just still nothing really. Like I don't know. After an extensive musicological analysis of the hip catalog, I've determined that uh, the technical reason is that I like the fast songs more than the slow ones. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, for sure. Like, like this also goes for some other fan favorites. Like I, I honestly, like uh, you're gonna kill me, Amanda, but I've never been crazy about Bob Cajun uh, or Fiddler's really? Green. Yeah, mm. they're fine. I'm just, Actually, I'm I'm with just you on really... Fiddler's Green. Yeah. That one's not one of my favorites, but I think Bob Cajun and Ahead by a Century are two of their best. No, but I, I, I love learning all about the lyrics here. I mean, I, I always love like learning that a song is about something cool, but just just something about this has just never really clicked with me. Honestly, like I, I look at right. it on the on the track listing and just can never remember how it goes. But I, I'm just going to stop talking because all of your thoughts on it were so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, melodically, I I don't really care about the song, but it's so, so engaging lyrically that it's it's not one I ever skip. Unlike We'll Go To, which who cares? <laughs> Damn it, We'll Go To. <laughs> So we'll move on now to the wherewithal. song see that was obviously much better than wheat kings it's amazing oh, geez <laughs> this is a really really good rocker at the very beginning it's almost a little bit thrashy but then the drums settle back into that same old rhythm which is more than a little disappointing i wish that harder beat had kept up but the guitars are good and loud and they do a lot to make up for that and speaking of which this song ends with the very coolest guitar solo on this album maybe one of the coolest in their entire discography
yeah, this is just another kind of like straight line Tom Petty kind of song, except maybe more "You Wreck Me" than "Running Down a Dream" in this case. But uh, yeah. uh, I dig it. Th- I dig it though, and it's a good unexpected closer on the band's live album, "Live Between Us." Uh, so uh, apparently, they thought they thought a lot of it at the time. Uh, for me, this song and El Dorado always suffer from the fact that I usually turn the album off after Wheat Kings because how really? could you follow up Wheat Kings? But uh, I, I, I fully agree. This is a great, uh, you know, solid rocker, some interesting lyrics. And um, the couple times I heard it in concert, it was a lot of fun. You know, if it's uh, about anything in particular, by chance? You know, um, I think uh, somebody else mentioned that this might be about Richard Nixon. Uh, yeah, which... there, I found a fan theory on oh, hitmuseum.com right. that suggested it may be about Richard Nixon, and it fits. Is that mm-hmm. an obscure Canadian politician of some sort? Yeah, uh, you guys wouldn't have heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> I love this song. I'm, But it sounds to me like it, admiration of somebody retiring before they necessarily need to, like how artists like... Michael Schur are confident enough to get into a piece of work they know is great, realize they could string it along for four years, and even though they're probably pushed to by networks and patrons, they stick to their guns and are left with a perfect work of art, like The Good Place. Mm-hmm. And this churner is a half minute shorter than any of the other songs on Fully Completely, so make of that what you will. <laughs> half a minute shorter and fast. And fast, yeah. it's like, it's like Stomp Box from They Might Be Giants, John Henry. I love a good Stomp Box reference. But before we dive too deep into They Might Be Giants, we'll cut it off and run to the final track on this album, El Dorado. the last song on an album is something completely skippable but i don't i don't think that's quite the case here i would not call this one of the highlights of the album but i think it earns its place uh, there are some interesting and unexpected chord changes that i like a lot it's got you know some slightly louder drums i haven't the slightest idea what it's about if it's about anything but that doesn't really matter and it includes the line whoop de doo if you can't take it which i kind of love you know as album closures go i'd say this is a good one yeah, I, I would definitely agree with Amanda. It's it's a, a good way to, to end the album on a slightly lighter note, uh, but it's a, a good solid song and uh, wraps the album up. And, uh, and yeah, I, I, again, like I said before, it, it kind of suffers in my mind because I tend to turn the album off after Wheat Kings, but maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> 
Yeah, to me, the wherewithal is like the final burst of adrenaline, and now the album is like hitting the five-minute cool-down session or something. Yeah, uh, yeah there you go. <laughs> yeah. uh, it even has a nice like steady groove to kind of like bring you home. Uh, but then it it also has that. I, I like that chord change also. It's just enough to throw you kind of off rhythm and distinguish the song as a composition. Uh, hmm. Otherwise, I don't really have much on this one. Uh, these yeah. last two songs aren't really very distinguished. Yeah, whoop de doo indeed, Mister Downey. Mm. <laughs> Fair Meh. Meh, I say. <laughs> so, we have gotten through fully completely. Amanda, what are your final thoughts on it? My final thoughts are, if you're looking to get acquainted with the Tragically Hip, which you should, this is probably the best place to start. There is honestly not a bad song to be found on here. There are some that are weaker than others, but there's nothing truly bad. And it's an excellent example of what the band was capable of. Uh, the production doesn't always do it any favors, and I wish the drums in particular had been more interesting, but those are fairly minor criticisms and pretty easy to overlook. This is also the most specifically Canadian of their albums, which would make the lyrics extra confusing to people who don't live here, but not to the <laughs> point where it's not enjoyable, I don't think. Uh, it's a really interesting peek into some aspects of Canadian culture, which, as we all know, is usually mocked by the rest of the world, and... I, for one, like hearing it taken seriously, but not so seriously that it stops being fun to listen to. There really is an awful lot of good music that has come out of Canada, as Sean said at the beginning of this episode, and Fully Completely is an absolutely essential example of that. Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. I mean, like I said, I, I learned about this album from this one little radio station that happened to broadcast into Detroit and would include a lot of Canadian bands like Sloan and The Odds, who I never would have heard otherwise. And I'm extremely happy that I learned about the Tragically Hip from them. And this is the best example of their their talent that I've encountered. What about you, Sean? Uh, you know, this is... A fantastic album, I think. It is, um, you, you can listen to it just for a set of great rock songs and ballads, uh, but understanding a little bit of the history and the incidents that these songs refer to, uh, I, I think makes it a really interesting peek into uh, Canadiana and the Canadian culture and, and how Canadians view themselves. It really is a, a fantastic example of just a solid rock album that's got a lot of hidden depths to it. Uh, once mm -hmm. you start digging these songs, my hope is that you want to explore further the Tragedy Hip discography and really get a sense of, of what these guys were about. This is this is certainly, along with one or two other albums, just the very best distillation of what the Tragedy Hip were about. Yeah, it... The album makes sense to me why these guys would essentially have been adopted as Canada's national band, even though a lot mm -hmm. of this album makes Canada sound pretty terrible with all the kidnappings and martial law and hockey. <laughs> <laughs> What's your reaction, Rich? Uh, well, I like the Tragically Hip. That's my reaction. Uh, but... <laughs> Listening to the band from the American perspective, like I, I, I'd honestly like heard a lot of just like very, just not very well researched talk about the band, like saying that 
uh, you know, they're they're big in Canada, but like musically, they're just an average bar band, blah, 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 blah. And, and I hope that this episode has demonstrated otherwise, because, it, you know, if, if you just have some damn curiosity about other countries and, and I'm speaking to Americans here, not you guys, uh, like, I don't know, just just listen to like all these like great backstories that uh, to these songs that Sean was talking about. There, there's just so much going on. Uh, it's uh, this is such a rich album and it's not their only good album. Does anybody have any further recommendations for listening to these guys? If you like this album? As I've said before, I am a fan of Best Of Collections. And the Tragically Hip have a particularly good one. And the songs on it were actually picked by their fans who voted uh, for their favorite songs on the Hip's website. And the resulting album is called Your Favorites. It's two discs full of fantastic songs, seven of which came from Fully Completely. As for proper albums, my personal favorite is Phantom Power. It's a little bit uneven, uh, but it still has plenty of great stuff on it, including Fireworks and Bob Cajun, which I referenced in the intro. Went back to bed this morning And as I'm pulling down the blind Yeah, the sky was dull And hypothetical And fall recommendations and they highlight a side of um, the tragedy hip which we've touched on a few times here and that is their live performances um, the first one would be if you can find a copy of the the last concert from Kingston uh, Kingston that they did in 2016 you know, go ahead and watch that it's just a, an incredible cultural document as well as a pretty good concert and you can tell uh, Gord Downey was diagnosed with with brain cancer, and you can tell that he was beginning to struggle a bit with singing and uh, performing the way that he was used to. But he still delivers just a fantastic show. Uh, the second recommendation I have um, highlights another side that we probably didn't talk a lot a lot about on this uh, podcast, which is his sense of humor. If you go to YouTube and you search for "killer whale tank." <laughs> Uh, uh, Gore Downey rant or, or whatever like that, you will find a live performance from a bootleg uh, from the early 90s where Gore Downey sings New Orleans is Sinking and then in the middle of it goes into this unbelievable, incredibly funny, incredibly crazy uh, stream of consciousness riff about being a guy uh, cleaning a killer whale tank at a aquarium. And I will not say anything more except to say... <laughs> You have to go listen to this. It's fantastic. <laughs> so uh, those would be my recommendations. Uh, some of the other albums that they put out uh, in the 1990s that that'll get mentioned here are definitely uh, worth picking up as well. Rich? 
Uh, well, the hip album that I have spun the most by far uh, is this album's direct follow-up, Day for Night. Uh, the album has much, much scuzzier production than this one, uh, with mistakes like sort of artfully left in, like all 90s-like and stuff. Uh, and the songs are less directly catchy than like the arena anthems that, that you'll find here on Fully Completely. But in my experience, they really, really get under your skin. And this is the album they were promoting when they appeared on Saturday Night Live, weirdly enough, thanks to tragically hip fan Dan Aykroyd, who introduced them while wearing a hockey jersey uh, and uh, they performed the amazing but woefully uncommercial slow burners grace Two and nautical disaster uh, for a bunch of unsuspecting americans very <laughs> weird choices yeah yeah well they were the singles but it was it's not a very yeah. commercial album uh, but when i saw them in 2012 they busted out the song greasy jungle and that's always been one of my favorites Yeah, I'd say that Live Between Us is not just a live album that gives you a sense of the band playing in your living room. You can hear the crowd totally giving it to the band and the band giving it right back. Many live albums just sound like less polished versions of the studio versions. This is not one of them. I had the fortune to see The Hip with Amanda and Sean on one of their later tours, and it was one of those shows that you remember viscerally, physically. You know, it wasn't mm -hmm. just Ben Lee loitering through his back catalog, which I've seen twice, but a show where the band was legit pushing themselves to live up to the chants of hip, hip, hip that greeted them. And that, that visceral memory is not just because we happen to be sitting right next to an amplifier. Well, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of this episode feels like us bragging that we got to see the Tragically Hip. That's worth bragging about. Yeah, no, yep. it is. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> We saw well, Sean saw them three times. Yes. I think he wins. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. I think we've pretty well covered everything there is to say about fully completely. Yeah. Thanks for hanging out with us and teaching us about Canada, Sean. Anytime. Yeah. And, uh, thank you. Thank you for visiting. And next time it'll be uh, uh, Kim Mitchell, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> so what's our next album, Will? Our next album... Well, we talked about the kink so much in our episode about the jam that Ben has decided to take us back to the source with Arthur, parentheses, or the decline and fall of the British Empire, in parentheses, by the kinks. The kinks! That makes me so excited we should roll some credits. All right, we can do that. Hosers. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy or stream fully completely and other albums by the hip at Sam the Record Man or the usual suspects such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. And we've made you a Spotify playlist that you can find on our website, discordpod.com. Follow Discord and Rhyme on Twitter at discordpod for news and updates. Check out Will's Music, that would be me, at disclaimer.bandcamp.com. 
Editing is by Rich, and special thanks to Mike DeFabio, the other leading brand, for production and original music, which you can hear more of at otherleadingbrand.bandcamp.com, and you totally should. See you next album, and be ever wonderful. Okay, so that's our topic for today. So good day. Good day. Hey, you guys. What? Back up. Hey, no. Hey, don't go. No, come back, eh? Look what you did. Everybody's gone. You see you.